the first Sunday of 2020, believe it or not, we are finally there, a new decade and a new time to serve the Lord. And you know, in many respects, we're living in the greatest time in history to serve the Lord because there's so much technology. And yes, it's used for Satan a lot of times, but we can use technology for his glory. So there's many avenues to get the word of God out. And uh, I hope that you will take your responsibility and your privilege to serve the Lord seriously this year. We're doing something different again this week. Next week, we're back in Nehemiah chapter 6. But today, we're in 1 John chapter 2. Because I want to make sure that we get off on the right foot this year. And I want to encourage you. We've uh, printed up some of these uh, Bible reading plans from, uh, as as, uh, Chris mentioned, Robert uh, Murray McShane from the early 1800s. He died just about three months, I believe, after he did this up for his church. But it's been used over the years in in a great way. And understand, folks, it's not the only way to read the Bible. It's a common way, especially among Bible believing, especially Reformed churches today. But the the whole idea is that you get into the Word of God and you take it in and you meditate on it and you get to know God through the word. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So let me just really encourage you, whatever plan is right for you and your family, use it and get into the word of God. It's a Christian discipline and it is very beneficial for those of us that know the Lord. So first John chapter two, just verse 12, 13 and 14. John writes, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer now. Father, thank you for your word. It is the very foundation of our spiritual growth. Through your word this morning, help us to understand that process and how you mature us in the Christian life. And yet the responsibilities that we have, in particular today, feasting on your word, getting to know you through the word. God, speak to our hearts by the power of your spirit, and may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of 1 John is a very important book for those of us that believe. It gives the evidences of what it means to be a true believer. And just some of those are that believers are those that walk in the light, not in darkness. Believers are those that 
confess their sins. They're honest about their sinful condition, and they confess their sins to God. They keep His commandments. Believers love the brethren. We love fellowship with the brethren. We do the will of God. We do not practice sin. We persevere in fellowshipping. We practice righteousness. And there are other things there. But in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, we see a progression of maturity that's very important. So he begins in verse 12, and he's actually writing here to all believers. Even though it might not appear that way in the beginning, you'll see what I mean. In verse 12, he writes, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Little children as technia, it means born ones. It's speaking of offspring in a general sense, without reference to age, without reference to maturity. So just as little Calvin, the child of Charlie and Loredana, is a technion of the par- the, his parents, Chris is also a technion of his parents. It doesn't have anything to do with age or maturity. It has to do with the fact that we're the offspring of someone else, of our parents. Now, by the way, Chris is not the oldest member of our congregation. And I'm not going to mention who that is, but... So, little children here has nothing to do with age. John is writing here to those who are children of God doesn't have anything to do with how long they've been saved or their personal levels of spirituality. It's simply stating that they're children of God. That's what he means in verse 12 by little children. We become children of God when we're born again. The new birth. My horse. Folks, I've had a sinus infection since Tuesday, so bear with me this morning. We become children of God when we're born again. And as we've talked about before, it means to be born from above. It's a heavenly, a spiritual birth. Remember Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born Again, we've got to be a part of God's family to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Just as we have nothing to do with our physical birth, though, we're helpless to cause our spiritual birth. Our spiritual birth is a work of God alone. It's a work of the Spirit. Just like the Spirit, the wind moves. You see, we have to be quickened by God. We don't know where the Spirit comes from or where it's going because it's a sovereign work of God. And therefore, God gets all the glory for it. We can't take any credit for our salvations. It's all of Him. Notice John reinforces who he's writing to in verse 12 by explaining why he's writing to them. He's writing to them because your sins are forgiven you. You see, either a person's sins have been forgiven or they're not. There's no middle ground. These are ones that God has rescued from their dead, sinful condition. And they are now 
forgiven. Again, there's only two spiritual categories. Think of it this way. Either a person is a child of God or he's a child of Satan. His father being the devil. Like it or not, we're all born into this world. Children of the devil. Dead in our sins. Separated from the life of God. You see, Adam is our federal head. He sinned and he acted as our representative. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. So we're all born dead to God dead to the life of God. We sin because we are by nature sinners. We're born in rebellion against God. It's not natural for a man to serve God or to love God. It can't happen apart from God's intervention. Unless God has rescued you, you are a child of the devil. You are in his family. You may be a good person, by worldly standards, but you're a sinner in the eyes of God. The scripture is perfectly clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and continually fall short of God's glorious standard. The fact that we sin is proof that we're sinners before a holy God. But there are some that have recognize their sinful condition, and they're actively working to fix their problem. They sort of have thought, well, if I start over, if I turn over a new leaf, if I just start now and live for God, then I'll be okay. Some work through religious efforts, thinking if I start doing good things, it will make up for my sin. If I attend church, if I serve, if I sacrifice, if I give, and the list goes on and on. But we know, those of us that know the Lord, that nothing that we can do can make us right in the eyes of a holy God. For he is holy and we are sinful. We're helpless to change our lost condition. We are without hope, therefore. As Isaiah put it, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's God's perspective. That's how he sees us apart from Christ. But these in 1 John chapter 2 had had their sins forgiven. They're in the family of God. They've been sun placed. Forgiven here is the word to send forth or to put away. Their sins had been put away, done away with, separated from God as far as the east is from the West. It's in the passive voice. These believers did not put their own sins away, but their sins had been put away for them, put away by God. It's only the children of God that have come to know God's complete and perfect forgiveness. It's only in Christ that man can receive real forgiveness. Paul, the apostle, attests, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace. Listen to that again. In him, we have redemption. That means to be bought back. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. They've been carried away. Separated from us. No longer associated with us. According to the riches of his grace. Folks, he is rich in grace. He is rich in mercy. And he saves to the uttermost those who believe. See, only children of God have been forgiven by God. John writes to those who have had their sins forgiven. Forgiven, excuse me. And that includes all believers. It's children in the sense of being offspring of God. But what's the purpose? Again, in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. He does this for his namesake, for his own glory. God grants forgiveness to believers, not because of our worthiness or merit, but rather for his namesake. Isaiah said this, or speaks for God, I am the Lord, it's Yahweh. I am the Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. He again writes in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, we are saved for his namesake. Our sins are forgiven for his namesake, that he might be glorified, that he might look good, that we would see him in his greatness and power and mercy and grace. Every believer has been adopted into the family of God for his namesake. Therefore, we may live. Let's say it this way. Therefore, may we live for his glory, for his namesake. In verse 12, every true believer has had their sins forgiven for his namesake. But not every child of God is equal in spiritual maturity. And that's what we see in verses 13 and 14. We see three levels of spiritual maturity. Those he identifies as fathers, young men, and children using a different word. John begins with fathers, then young men, then children. Then again in verse 14, fathers and young men. So let's walk progressively through these three by age, but beginning with children. Verse 13c I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you. I am writing to you, little children. Here, the word little children is different than in verse 12. It's paideia. It means an infant or half-grown, like a young child. While technia, in verse 12, refers to all believers, born ones, Padilla refers to refers just to the newborn or new believers. He says, I write to you, little children, infants, because you have known. You have known 
the Father. This is in the perfect tense. It's a one-time action in the past with results that continue to the present. And that's what happens. We come to know him and it continues to the present. The benefits continue to the present. That relationship. As a result of God's intervention, becoming children of God, we know the Father. And this speaks of relationship. A beginning relationship. These are infants. They're young in the faith. Jesus said in his high priest prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ you have, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. Salvation, excuse me, salvation is not just knowing the facts. Now listen carefully here. Salvation is not just knowing the facts that Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. The demons believe and tremble. Salvation is knowing the one that was crucified and buried and risen again. And there's a big difference, folks. We come to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus, entrusting a person, the God-man, the one that Jesus Christ sent and bore our sins. Yes, he was crucified and buried and risen again and without which we could not be saved. But we don't trust the facts. We trust the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to Him. He is our Savior. Are you trusting Him this morning? Even little children, even infants in the faith are trusting Him. Having known the Father, it's what He writes. These are those, or because you, it says, have known the Father. It's the characteristic John gives of a newborn Christian. But it must not remain our only identity throughout our Christian lives. Understand, there's nothing wrong with being a new believer, being an infant. It's natural. We don't expect a little baby to act like a mature adult. That would not be right. It's not natural, and neither should we expect new people in the faith, to act like they are mature. They have to mature. Maturity comes with growth. But see, the problem is here, although it's nothing wrong with acting like an infant to a degree when you are an infant, the problem is when professing believers remain infants and never grow up. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you've really come to know Him, if you've tasted that He's good, and you're a true believer, put away those things and long for the pure spiritual milk. The Word of God. Peter is instructing new believers to take in spiritual milk. The milk of the Word to grow up into salvation, to grow in respect to salvation. It's what we call or a lot of people today call progressive sanctification. 
And it's certainly not the same thing that we talk of typically when we talk about sanctification. Typically, we're talking about positional sanctification. We are set apart by God. God made us perfectly holy in his eyes. And that's true from the very moment that we believe. It's called imputed righteousness. Righteousness that's placed on our account. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ placed on our account. And we see this throughout scripture. Perfectly holy before God. Paul writes to the Corinthians who didn't always act holy. But he says in chapter one to them who are sanctified. They were already perfectly sanctified in the eyes of God. But what people call progressive sanctification is simply growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply progressively growing to act more like who we are, who he's made us to be in Christ. Paul wrote to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 6, and after telling them that he that telling them that they were dead to sin and alive to God through union with Christ, he then in verse 11 tells them to consider it to be true. And then he writes this in verse 13. Do not present your members as sin to sin. Start over. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, that's man's responsibility. You know, we could say that man has nothing to do with salvation whatsoever in becoming born again, but spiritual growth involves responsibility on our part. You know, well, we, we already seen it in First Peter 2. You can't grow spiritually apart from the word of God. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual word that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's that progressive kind of sanctification. It's growing. It's spiritually maturing. It's becoming more like Christ, or at least we should. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, once again, he prayed for those that the Father had given them given him. They were already saved. He's praying for saints. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify again means to set apart, to make holy, to purify, or to consecrate. We are to progressively be becoming more and more like Christ. And it's through the word of truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have to be set apart in the word of God to become like him. There's no doubt that the very moment that we're born again, we're set apart from sin to holiness. God declares us perfectly righteous. So the very moment that we're born again, we're perfectly holy in God's eyes. And we remain holy in God's eyes throughout our lives into eternity. This is true throughout the word of God. It's not just a New Testament, a new covenant occurrence. Because Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 and in Galatians 3. Romans 4, excuse me, in Galatians 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. True believers 
should not remain infants. We should rem not remain those who are only identified as having known the Father. This is how they're identified in verse 13. Little children are identified as those that have known the Father. Heirs tense. But we must move on to maturity. We must not only take in the milk of the word, we must take in solid food. 1 Corinthians 3. But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Babes have to be fed milk, right? The basic things of the Word of God. And we saw this in the passage that was sent out by Melissa yesterday. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, an infant in other words. We must get deeper into the Word of God as we grow, reading, studying, meditating, feasting on its richness. Paul wrote to Timothy, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a worker that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. That's our responsibilities as believers. It should be the delight of our hearts. It shouldn't be some task or something that we have to do. I know it's a discipline. I know it takes effort. I know we have to put away other things in order to get into the Word of God and spend the time there. But all the benefits, all the richness of it, when we set apart things that get in the way and spend time in His Word. And this is exactly what we see happening as we continue on in 1 John chapter 2, notice what John reveals about young men. Verse 13b, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. What a statement. Overcome is Nakia. It's the word from which we get the word Nike, by the way. Victor means to subdue, to conquer, overcome, prevail. To get the victory. Because you have overcome the wicked one. From which we get the word porn, actually. Something that's hurtful. Evil in respect to influence. Satan seeks to harm us. To influence us for evil. But we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's important. Notice in 1 John 2, the young men are identified as such because you have overcome the wicked one. But now notice verse 14, what John refers to about these young men. He adds to it. Verse 14, B, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now he says, I've written in verse 13, I'm writing. Verse 14, I have written. So he's building on what he's already written in the previous verse. 
adding more truth. First John identifies them and in verse 14, you are strong. The word mighty or powerful. When we're babes, we're weak and thus dependent on others for help and protection. But as we mature, our bodies strengthen. They grow stronger. We get more self-control. It's true spiritually as well. We gain spiritual strength, making us more able to stand on our own, to stand against the darts of the evil one. Notice John also identifies these men as those which the word of God abides. How would you like to be characterized as one in which the word of God abides? John writes to those who are marked by an understanding of spiritual truth. They're growing to know the word of God. It abides in them. It's an important part of their lives. It's a controlling factor in their spiritual growth. The word of God is living in us, giving us victory over false beliefs and over false living. That's what's supposed to happen. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But the two preceding verses says this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. It changes our thinking. It even changes our desires. I hate every false way. It causes us to hate that which God hates. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not only does it change our thinking, it changes our behavior. That we don't want to sin against Him. That we want to please Him. And there's a reason for all this, as we're going to see in a few moments. It's not enough to have the Word of God in our heads. In other words, it must penetrate our hearts. Our thinking must change in such a way that our behavior is affected. You know, I remember something from Bible college about how that what we believe affects how we think and how we think affects how we live. And there's so much truth. Those principles or those two principles are found throughout the word of God. Paul wrote to the Roman believers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We must be transformed. It's the word from which we get the word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. Transformed. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds are transformed when they are renewed with truth. We replace lies for truth. Satan is the author of lies, but God is truth, and God has revealed his truth. We must be in his word. Spiritual growth takes place and takes us into a deep relationship with the Father. Now look at the third level of spiritual maturity, just briefly. Verse 13a, 
I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And he says the same thing in verse 14, except I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Fathers, those who are mature, able to produce offspring even, know him who is from the beginning. And I think this certainly implies a deeper understanding of knowing God, knowing the eternal God, Yahweh, the eternal self-existing one, the I am of eternity. He's always the I am. He wasn't in the past, I was. He is the I am, the eternal self-existing one, the one that is always in the present. This implies a deeper understanding, knowing God. As we grow, we get excited about theology. That sort of fits where the young men are, and that's a good thing. Actually, that should never leave us to be engrossed in the Word of God and learning and taking everything that we can. But at the same time, we must remember the Word of God points us to the God of the Word. And that's the difference here with fathers. Not only... Would they have the same characteristics, I believe, that the young men do? But they've, they have allowed the word of God to take them into a deep relationship. Knowing him who is from the beginning. Seeing him as he really is. The word of God points us to the God of the word. To him who is from the beginning. Paul expresses his desire, his longing in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him. The word of God must become our delight. Job said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. The word of God was more important to him than his daily food. Job. The word of God must become our delight. Because the word of God points us to Yahweh. The eternal self-existing God. And when we mature in the faith. You see. There comes a point that we're not in our relationship with God. It's not just about what I know from the men that God worked with in the past. Through, God has, through which God has revealed his truth. But as I mature and grow, I begin to see God working in my life. It becomes personal. And in a sense, I become a part of what God has done. Not just in salvation, but seeing how God has worked and matured me and grown me and made me victorious over the evil one. A Nike over the evil one. Victorious. And bringing me into a relationship with God that's intimate. Where we could say, just like the psalmist, as the deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's maturity. 
getting past just about knowing the word of God for the sake of knowledge, but knowing where it points me, it points me to God. It points me to his son. We need to read, study, meditate, share, discuss, proclaim the word of God. It needs to become our delight because the word of God reveals God. You want to know him? Look to the word. For he has revealed himself through it. Let's pray.